This is Dennis Hallam, writer of Exo Manowar, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Simpsons of the Republic of Spoilerverse. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan, and today on the show, well, it's Dennis, quote-unquote, hopeless, Hallam, and he is writing up Exo Man of War for, for Valiant now, and we're super excited uh, to see where this leads, because Dennis is an amazing writer, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see where he goes. Uh, we got lucky. Dennis came by once again, and he's talked with our man, Jeff. So instead of listening to me pontificate and say needless things, why don't we get right into it and listen to Dennis Hallam in his own words. Listeners of Spoiler Country, today on the show, we had the fantastic Dennis Hallam. How's it going, Mr. Hallam? Going well. How are you? I'm doing very well. And once again, thank you very much for coming back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's definitely our pleasure. So since you've been, since the time from the last time you were on the show, you have started writing X and O Manowar for Valiant Comics. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually started working on it a really long time ago because we had a lot of lead time and then COVID <laughs> came right <laughs> after uh, But yeah, uh, no, the book is finally coming out. It feels like COVID has ruined a lot of things for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So with Exodal Manowar, were you a fan of the 90s Valiant comic book, Exodal Manowar? I did not read it in the 90s. I, I was reading comics sort of sporadically at the time because we didn't have a local comic shop. But I was aware of the Valiant books, but I didn't read them. But when they did the the 20 whatever it was, 2011, 2012 relaunch, I was actually pitching on one of the other books. And so I read a bunch of old Valiant stuff. And then I read the, the first arc or two of, of that EXO run and thought it was excellent back then. So I had a working understanding of it before I got the job. <laughs> so, so, so what is it about EXO Manowar that just grabs you and goes, this is the title I had to work on? Is, is there something, in, what is it that's enduring about that character? For me personally, it was it was fun to get like a like a super masculine, super badass punch him in the face and ask questions later character. <laughs> I career most of my bigger books have been on teenagers or you know Spider Woman. I had a big run on, and so I haven't had that like alpha male 
<laughs> brutal action book. So I, yeah. I'm really excited to take that on and to figure out what my version of that would be. So that was really exciting. I think in general, the thing that's the most interesting and most fun about the character is the the wild anachronism of, you know, a Visigoth warrior who's used to stabbing Romans in the throat with a, <laughs> with a blade being given a, you know, a suit, an alien super armor that's more badass than Iron Man's. And, <laughs> I, you know, it's just, just a really interesting combination. And then when you throw in that the sentient AI is a, you know, like a partner in crime, it's it's just a lot of fun. And the other thing I really liked about reading the comic book, well, your 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 run, I I will read much of the 90s run, though at the time I was reading mostly just, I think, Solar for Valiant at that time, right. is the scope of what it allows you to do with your stories with Man of War. I mean, once again, you have a, you have a Visigoth from the past. He's fighting on, in, on modern Earth with futuristic space weaponry with aliens right. from outer space. So, I mean, it gives you a large scope of basically almost anything from Earth um, realm issues to space issues in which to play in. Yeah, and it's a lot of that was the interesting thing about taking it over is that a lot of what has been done with the character since the since the 2012 launch has been in space, stopping alien armadas, imprisoned on an alien spaceship, living on an alien world, and we hadn't really gotten to see much of the the man out of time element of it. You know, just a human from a before times living <laughs> in modern world and, and having to figure out a modern sensibility while also being you know the most powerful guy in every room so it was nice that we had that little that little niche that hasn't really been touched upon to to really dive into and and build the terrestrial world of it you know like his his villains on this in this series and his co-stars in this series are very much human beings with human problems and and everything is is earth-based so that's fun so, so when you were reading the back issues, you thought really the thing that you thought to yourself was to make it yours. You wanted to keep it more like terrestrial. Yeah, I just want you know Eric as a human living. You know he he's living in a different time, but around other human beings, and he hasn't had that. You know he's had familial relationships, but it's been with you know other alien slaves and stuff. So yeah, I wanted to to ground it. And part of that is just, that's what I do. That's, that's where I come to most of my stories is like, how do you make these characters relatable? And is it about the human condition that we can, that we can play with here? And I think being a person who's out of place, being a person who doesn't understand the mentality of the room, you know, like that doesn't get why people aren't responding the way he wants to and trying to figure out who to trust and trying to, to build that found family that we all come, come to build over our lives that makes him relatable, even though he's, you know, he's wrapped in a nuclear weapon that <laughs> tells him when he's doing something wrong that has right, right. width and breadth of human knowledge at his disposal. He doesn't really understand the world that he's, but in order to be a person and have a life and to, to grow as a human being, he's going to have to figure that out. So that's what's relatable about it to me and what, what makes the, you know, the human half of the book. A lot of fun. We're also blowing a lot of stuff up. <laughs> so one cool thing, like I said, I, I'm actually really a big fan of the time period with the Visigoths and the and the Romans. Are you going to be showing some more flashbacks of what life was like for him back then? I'd really I'd like to get into that eventually. We're we're doing a lot of here and now world building in any of these first couple arcs because you know he hasn't been on Earth much, and we really want him to 
to sink his feet into the dirt here. But yeah, I, I agree. That stuff is all really interesting. And his, his perspective is interesting. Like yeah, the idea of being trying to stop the Roman empire from gobbling <laughs> you up and, and crushing you underfoot like that, that explains his mentality. That explains why he does the things he does. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to get there. Now, as we kind of touched on a little earlier, there was obviously a situation in the real world that caused some problems. I see COVID yeah. that, that felt like the entire world for at least for um, the last, I don't know what you would say nine months at this point kind yeah. of has totally stopped. And unfortunately the same thing kind of happened with XNO Manowar where it happened just at the time when the first issue launched yeah. getting ready for the second issue. And there's a bit of a delay there. Yeah. Our first issue was, shipped the last week there were comics before diamond closed down in march so we came out and then like a week or two later it was pencils down across the industry so yeah that was that, a little rough that, that's some really shitty timing right there yeah no it was and like i mentioned before we had a lot of lead time on this book like heather called and, and talked to me about what we would do heather antos the editor yep. about what i would do and i was pitching the book when the previous run was still going like i don't i think the last couple issues hadn't come out yet so we spent a lot of time figuring out how to make this something new but that you know that still resonated with the existing readers and what direction we take it in and we talked for a long time and spent a lot of time on our long-term plans and short-term plans. So by the time that first issue came out, like I feel like we'd been talking about it for 18 months or something. And yeah. I had four issues in the can. So yeah, whenever it was finally time to re-release it, they put up the number one again. And then now with the second issue out, I have to go back and reread them because <laughs> it's hard to remember for, for the, you know, all, all this press tour. that <laughs> It's hard to remember like even what happens. So it was fun to, <laughs> To get back in and revisit it, and then as we're as we're working forward, it's almost like I'm taking over from a different writer because I. Wrote it <laughs> so you went back. You're like, what the hell was I doing there? <laughs> what yeah. was happening? I don't remember this. <laughs> yeah, I remember the broad strokes. It becomes hard to remember what happens in which issue. So especially, I got to make sure not to spoil stuff. It's not out yet. <laughs> that's that's really funny, because you also had that huge gap between issues and obviously the penciled down time period. Did you have the opportunity, and did you at all? kind of rethink where you were taking the character and at, at where and was is the current story at all affected by those decisions in that quiet time between those issues because of the delay well like i said the first four were written and those i i believe i did a revision on four in the, like early days of the pandemic but then it was kind of just a wait and see because we didn't know how long things were going to be closed our long-term plans are pretty similar to what they were, but I would imagine that my mental state in the first few months <laughs> and having, because it wasn't just this book, like all of my books, all my work for hire stopped and all my income stopped at the same time. So if you told me that there are elements of, of my mental state from that time period in the plot outline for the second arc, I would 100% believe you. <laughs> um, but not, you know, not in any real practical you know there's no there's no quarantine or pandemic in the book but yeah i would i would say that probably all of the fiction that's being made right now and 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 during that has been affected by it because it's hard not to it's weird even to watch tv shows or movies where people are like hugging and interacting and they're in yeah. tight space concerts or things that we haven't seen in so long so yeah i'm guessing it'll imprint on our fiction for a while yeah i, I definitely i definitely would say so i mean just the idea of when you see someone on TV not wearing a mask, you're like, son of a bitch, put on your mask. What are you doing? So they, eat off, they eat off each other's plates and they're, they're yeah. you're like, that's really it's a, go ahead. 
it, it, it feels like some, something that didn't would seem natural. Now it feels almost like a horror story. It's like, oh, what are they doing? Those bastards don't do that. Yeah, I wonder. I have six-year-old twin boys, and this is supposed to be their kindergarten year, and we're doing it sort of half remotely, half homeschooling because they can't go into school. And I wonder what it's doing to them. Like, because to them, you know, staying away from other people and having masks on, they're not going to remember much before that because they're like that exact age where memories start to kick in really hard. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder for how long a generation of kids is going to be germaphobic. Because I would imagine, like, we're all filthy creatures that made our habits. Our habits are our deep set grooves. So, I would imagine most adults are going to snap back, uh, yeah. you know, once, once we're through it. But yeah, I bet these kids are going to be much cleaner like their hands are going to be cleaner and they're going to be more conscientious about sneezing and stuff than we ever were well there's definitely going to be some a certain amount of i guess ptsd that's been going on with the younger generation and i I would wager that whatever cultural changes they adapt are going to be very very noticeable as they hit teenage years you'll realize you know they're not shaking hands at at the you know anymore they're not you know they're they're like doing like weird elbow bumps as hellos things of that nature yeah, the handshaking thing is weird. Like, it feels rude to not shake somebody's hand, but it's actually maybe rude to shake someone's hand now. Uh, yeah. It's a strange, it's a strange <laughs> cultural shift. I, I would think so. I'm actually, I, I'm a teacher at a, at a therapeutic high school in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And the few times someone has approached me to, like, shake my hand like an adult. And I kind of looked at him like, back the fuck up. Right. You know? I mean, I know he was trying to be nice, but in my head I'm just like, dude, this is a major you know, imposition. Back up. Right. Yeah, I, I think probably a lot of people also dealt with uh, Thanksgiving has just happened and irritated family members when you didn't want to come and gather with everyone. That's like, well, not only am I not coming, but why are you doing this? This is <laughs> like a terrible idea. Yeah, it, 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 it feels when you hear someone else saying, I'm going to my, I mean, I'm going to hang, you know, my family for Thanksgiving or something. You think to yourself, you know, you, you almost feel like, like they're doing something wrong. You're like, what are you doing? Right. You know, that, that's, do you know how bad this is? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. So when when you're if you read the next issue that you've written during this pandemic, is there going to be are we going to notice like a certain weirdness like, wow, Dennis Hollum has been locked in his house way too long when he wrote this? I hope I mean, in order to write these characters, especially fantastical ones, you kind of have to inhabit a different time and place and mentality anyway. So I, I don't think that there's anything that directly not an exo. Also, we played it. Like I said, we had a lot of lead time, so we plotted this thing pretty tight. So I would, I doubt there's anything that makes you think I'm a crazy person. Now, <laughs> Sea of Stars, my image book that has space monkeys and space fish and stuff that I, that I do with Stephen Green and Jason Aaron, that has definitely gotten weirder. Like it is very clear that I have had fewer jobs, and when I go to write that one, <laughs> it's gone <laughs> off the rails. But no. Exo, I think they smartly are keeping me on the straight and narrow with the, with the plot. <laughs> That's awesome. So the other very important question I, I'm sure our listeners would want to know is to read the current run of Exo Manowar, how familiar do they need to be with the prior run, runs of Exo Manowar and the surrounding universe? You, you don't need to read it at all. Like We make it pretty clear what has happened and what got him to where he is. Now, if you have read the previous runs, there's there's stuff in there for you and you will understand, you know, his attitude and his mentality and his damage a lot better if you've read that. But I tried to, I always think of Cable because one of my first ongoing books was Cable and X-Force. And, you know, I'd read Cable books. I knew who Cable was, but I sat down with Cable's Wikipedia and with some old comics to try to like figure out like what I could reference and what I put in there. And 
Cable's backstory makes no sense. Like there's no way that one man lived all those things and there's no <laughs> way to reference any of it quickly in a 20 page comic while you're also telling a new story. So what I came to was, okay, this is a guy that's been through all these things and he wears the weight of them and you know, his, his attitudes and uh, fears and personality all wears the coat of the stuff he's been through, but we don't talk about it that much. Like it's only referenced if it's, if, you know, it's very specifically deals with what's going on. And that's, that's the kind of the way we've gone with EXO. Like this guy has been through a lot and it's a lot of really strange stuff that was really affecting, but he's probably not going to sit and talk about it. It's like a guy, a quiet guy that's been through the war. Like if you ask him directly, he'll answer and he wears the weight of it, but he's not just going to be chatty Cathy about it all the time. <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do. We want it to be really new reader friendly and it is a, a very new direction for the character, but this is the same guy. This is, this is you know, Eric, the Visigoth who, who did all those things. Yeah. It's just, it's not a major part of our, of our plot. So how tight of a universe is the Valiant universe? It, like, are we going to definitely get nods to the other characters within Exo Manor War? Or is it a little bit like maybe older DC where, you know, you, you kind of know they're in the same world, but they don't really impact each other? Yeah, at first, with all of these books, the current runs, we're trying to really establish the characters in their own little of the Valiant universe, just so that new, you know, to make it new reader friendly is always a big part of it, but also just so you you get everything you need to know from reading these pages. But like I'm good friends with Colin Bunn and he's writing uh, Shadow Man and I want nothing more than to totally chump Shadow Man in the pages of <laughs> Man of War. Uh, yeah. Just to get one over on Colin. So we have plans going forward. So yeah, for the first couple of arcs of all the books, I'd say to plan on it being pretty focused on the central character. But going forward, absolutely, we'll take advantage of the shared universe because the characters are, you know, super interesting and different from one another and the just the, yeah the potential to have like a magic versus science storyline coming up where shadow man gets involved is huge so it down the line for sure we'll do that i, I definitely hope so like i said i think valiant is, is a really fun universe and it's been i think a while that valiant, the valiant as a universe as a whole has gotten as much recognition as it probably deserves yeah no there's there's plans there's definite plans for it now obviously the pandemic <laughs> has slowed everybody's <laughs> plans a bit but yeah, I think you can you can plan on that. The the other great thing I that um I enjoyed about reading your issues of Exxon Manowar is that the art is tremendous. Um, I'm gonna get the guy's name wrong. Emilio Lazo Lazo. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Oh, I I got one right. <laughs> this is I'm pretty good. Yeah. And it, it, how does it change what you're writing to have to know that your artist is as talented as he is? Well, I mean, usually the hardest thing about taking over a new book is you never know what it's like to work with the artist because, you know, unless it happens to be a friend of yours or someone you worked with before, you don't know what that first issue is going to look like. And you kind of find your, your, your legs together and you can kind of push and pull to play their strengths. But fortunately I worked with Emilio on one of my Spider-Man game reverse arcs he, he drew. And I knew just how much energy and, and movement and amazing facial expressions and, and character acting he could do. So it was really nice writing the first issue because like, oh, okay, <laughs> I know what this guy's bring, <laughs> and, and I got to push in those directions. But yeah, it definitely gives you a ton of freedom when you know not only are you going to get crazy, bombastic action sequences, but you can also ask for a wry smile or something, and that's going to make sense. So yeah, it's, it's, a huge, <laughs> it's a huge advantage to have not just a fantastic artist, but a, someone with some range. Uh, do you find that you 
you can in your writing play down things in dialogue because you know he can bring it up in the look of the character in the artwork you can say you know i don't need him saying this or thinking this like in the writing because i know in just you know this image this how he sets this up that will already be told in the picture i usually so like with action sequences my initial draft or the 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 drawing draft if you want to call it that doesn't have much in the way of dialogue unless it's really important to understand what's happening because yeah I've worked with enough brilliant artists in my career that a lot of times you'll write a bunch of flowery poet, you know, poetic captions or dialogue over an action sequence, and then you just erase it all when you get there. So I kind of <laughs> try to make it so those those stand on their own as much as possible. And then once it's drawn, I can look at it and be like, okay, you know, like a funny one-liner here or something to add some clarity here or whatever the case is. So yeah, it, the worst thing is when you're working with somebody who doesn't the thing or like is focused on something. Usually it's just a miscommunication. Like they're focused on not what you intended. And then you have to go back over the top and, and make it clear in the dialogue. And that's not an issue with Emilio at all. Like you could literally remove me from the action sequences and it would still be just as much fun. <laughs> so for, for the new writers who are maybe listening to the podcast, you know, the, the, the rookie uh, scripters, would you say then the first major mistake that they make is, they put too much wording in the story, like is less more in comic book? I mean, I think a lot of times, yes. A lot of times you need to let the art stand on its own. And I say that as a very wordy writer. Like I, my comics all have big dialogue sequences and lots of, you know, back and forth. But what I try to do is give the artist something fun to draw while the characters are talking, but not something that's so elaborate that you're going to cover it all up. And then, yeah, have some pages, like a lot of them, a third of the book, where you're just getting out of the way and letting the artist play. Because, you know, nobody wants to draw a bunch of people sitting behind desks in an office chatting <laughs> for 20 pages. And, you know, most people don't want to read that either. So, yeah, I think it's there's a push and pull to it. The best thing is when you develop a rapport where you can just give them like three or four sentences of what happens on the next three pages, and then they just go, and you get back this brilliant work. And that's I think that's the goal. That's what you should want is a collaboration where everybody plays to their strengths and elevates it. And yeah, whenever, because the book isn't the thing that's in your head when you're typing. It's what is, you know, what comes back and what you put on top of that and what goes to the printer. So the ability to be flexible and to, to collaborate and to let their input, the artist, what the artist is capable of bringing to it be as big a part of the stew if not bigger than what than what you're bringing, this is crucial because you can tell you can tell when someone's drawing what they're being asked and when someone's drawing you know what they think is good. So, yeah, I mean, collaboration is the name of the game for sure. I mean, can can you tell when an artist is not into it? I, I mean, I don't know if you ever had, if there's that experience ever ever existed with you, but can you tell the difference of when your artist is really like owning the story or when they're kind of like, all right, I'll do what you tell me to? Sometimes there are a lot of people that are. I mean, I've just been, I've been really lucky, to be honest. I've, I've worked with, even when I was green and when people shouldn't have been giving me their all because I didn't know what I was doing, I've, I've gotten, by and large, just fantastic art. But yeah, there are, there are times, especially early in my career, where I was just in love with my dialogue and asking for a scene that had no visual interest to it and working with an, a seasoned artist who was like, okay, well, that's a, that's a day off. Because that, <laughs> you know, that page doesn't have to be interesting. And it's a shame because you're, you know, you're boring them. You're not getting their best work. And then you end up with, you know, 
three quarters of the book that's amazing and then these you know five or six pages that are boring when if you had thought a little bit about like i know what this guy likes to draw like i've seen his work i've you know read her comics or whatever i could make this more interesting then that'd be better and, yeah, and a lot of times it's just finding your way, finding your collaborator. All of those instances I learned from, and then by the end of that collaboration, it was great. So sometimes it's just finding it, but for sure. And, and it must be kind of fun when the artist does come back with their work. And it must be sometimes where you've been excited and, and shocked that the artist has incorporated something into the story that maybe you hadn't even thought of. Oh, more often than not, yeah. The pages I get back are often much, much cooler than what I was picturing in my head. And <laughs> Yeah, the, the best collaborations, you you completely rewrite the book based on what they've done. Or, you know, not so that your letter wants to kill you. I don't mean that. But I just mean you re, you see stuff that what, that that they've added that elevates the scene and then you tweak it to, to lean into that. Or, yeah, that, like I said, just get out of the way. Like there's a, the best example I can think of of that was in my Spider-Woman run. We did a alien hospital. She gives birth in an alien hospital that's being overrun by scrolls and <laughs> the pages that came back for her like hiding out and fighting her way through this insane jack kirby alien hospital were so much more incredible than anything that i could have thought of and javier's page layout and the structure of it was just so brilliant that i didn't want words on it like this, this is all just <laughs> silent because like <laughs> what he did was so much cooler than anything i was capable of writing and yeah it, the way that happens is by letting creative people be free to do what they want. That's awesome. And the other interesting thing about Exo Manowar, because of the the suit, is it? Am I pronouncing it right, Shanhara? Shanhara. Yeah, I I don't know. Everybody pronounces it differently. I say Eric for the for Exo's yeah first name, and every one of Valiant says Arik, but I know a guy <laughs> named Eric that spells it that way. Yeah. So I, whatever, just pronounce it. <laughs> you <wouldn't> pronounce it. <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the writer. So for, for today, we'll, we'll call him Eric. Right. Um, so because of the, the suit, how defined did, did you, do you want the, the abilities of the suit to be? Well, the problem with the suit is that it's so powerful and has done so many different things in the past that it can basically do anything, which makes it a little bit like a Green Lantern ring where it's kind of like it's up to the imagination of the wearer. And... Eric is very smart and very savvy, but maybe not the most technologically imaginative imaginative fellow. So we start pretty simple with it. Like he does what it would occur to him to do in that moment. But as the book goes on, he starts um, leaning on the supporting cast a little bit more with Shanhara's thoughts. And then we introduce uh, a new character who is, is kind of enter that realm with them. And so you'll start to see us kind of push the boundaries of what, of what, not necessarily what the suit's capable of, because it's always been capable of this stuff, but just what it occurs to him to do in the moment. And also, you got to make the villains bigger and more badass as it goes on, so that he's not just crushing everyone in a second. So yeah, as as things get harder, you'll see the the suit become cooler. Are actually challenging to him. Uh, hello. What? That illusion. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we lost each other first for a moment. I said because of how powerful the suit is, is it difficult to come up with villains and challenges that are actually going to, I guess, challenge him? Well, that was one of the big things. Like, the two things we wanted to do is make the world to build the world from a human level, an emotional level, so that he has a community, and then also to make the world bigger and scarier and weirder, so we can get to a place where we're doing Thor Ragnarok. But it makes sense in the Valiant Universe because the Valiant Universe at base level is very much the real world. 
so yeah, that's that's where we're headed. Like this arc and then the, the first couple of arcs are sort of about building credible threats from the ground up so that, yeah, it's it's not just Eric crushing everyone. Because, you know, like no normal human foe is going to be any match for him. And he can, right, right. he can end a war with a punch. But you, yeah, the, the, the threats, it's like the world changes around him to to match him. Like this thing exists. So now the world has to be different because of it. It does sound like there's a potential or, if you, or did you consider the potential of the, I guess I call it Superman problem, where you have a character like Superman who on one issue is moving an asteroid and the second issue he's grunting, stopping a train. I do you ever wonder, like, how do you like measure and make sure that, you know, it's consistent? Yeah, and our answer to that is when he's early on in the series, the threats are not that physically difficult for him, but the repercussions of his solution become really problematic. So like in the first issue, he... There's a, a dead spaceship that's falling out of orbit. It's going to crash into the city. And he catches it and stops it from killing a bunch of people. But then he lands it and drops it in the middle of rush hour traffic, which obviously pisses off <laughs> a thousand New Yorkers. And yeah. that creates problems from him from a PR standpoint. So now everyone in the neighborhood hates him and thinks he's crazy. And that is an issue. Or we did a short story teasing the book where he crashes a <laughs> helicopter through a bunch of apartment buildings which is great in that he stops the bad guys, but if you live in the apartment building, it's a problem. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's there's real-world repercussions to normal superheroic things. And then as the book goes on, yeah, we, we just make the shark bigger. Like, the bad guys and the things that he's facing become much more difficult for him, and then his power grows, and they change to meet him. And so, yeah, by the end of it, you should have plenty of credible threats that actually tax the, the the character and the suit and the other thing i, I thought was really cool is, is that you compared the suit to the green lantern's ring not only because of the way his power works but because the green lantern ring in later years has been demonstrated to be i guess sentient and also iron man's armor so right. is shinhara sentient in the way that it has emotions and morality or is it more of just a, a, an ai that is i guess opinionated but definitely but does it have like a, a to it yeah, Shinhara was actually a person. An alien. She was an alien, but at once upon a time, she was a living being. And then her, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but her personality and, and essence and sentience got put into the suit. So we, we've we given her this Shinhara character a, a lot larger of a role. And she's a lot more of a vocal partner. But yeah, she's definitely, she's giving her opinion. She has access instantaneously to you know, all of human and alien knowledge. So she's a bit of a know-it-all and can be kind of uh, annoying in that Siri way from time to time. But she has a personality. She has a voice. She, you know, she is a, a person with, with yeah, like inherent morality, which is important, I think, because you have two very different creatures with two very different mindsets who both inhabit this superhero, essentially. And the one that controls the body is the one that thinks less and punches first. You know, he's, he's not dumb, but he's <laughs> right, very right. much action first. And Shinhara is always thinking, always seeing five chess moves ahead, always telling him the possible negative repercussions of everything while he's going ahead and doing this. <laughs> so yeah, it makes for a really fun partnership. It, but it, she, she's, to answer your question directly, she's, she's definitely a person. It, it, it sounds, I mean, is the in interactions a little bit like when, when I was growing up, one of my big combo characters I was a fan of is a uh, Firestorm, the yeah. Ronnie Raymond, Professor Stein interaction where 
Raymond's obviously a kid, so he doesn't really know exactly what he's doing, but he does have the mentor Stein who's kind of coaching him, telling him, ex- explaining how things are supposed to be operating. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's I, th- I thought of that whenever I first started writing it. My Actually, some random 70s issue of Firestorm that I got at a Stuckey's when I was five years <laughs> old was my first comic book. Um, oh, nice. I, <laughs> I, I thought of that relationship when I was first started writing. Yeah. Also, it must help as well with making your armor sentient because you know, I guess one difficulty you have with a character who's by themselves is that, you know, who's he talking to? Who's, who's he explaining what's going on or what they're thinking? It must help to have uh, an armor for him to have a conversation with so you can kind of share his thoughts with the readers. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Of, it's helpful. It's actually kind of it's my favorite thing to write is people arguing. It always has been. And so the fact that I don't have to add another character to the mix to have an argument is it's like both the best thing and the worst thing about the book because <laughs> I'm constantly having to be like, okay, calm down. This scene is about something else. They don't need to be <laughs> arguing about basketball right now. Or whatever. Um, well, but, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, when, the, when you mentioned the basketball scene, I must admit, I thought that scene where Eric, um, Eric is playing basketball with the kids was a phenomenal scene. I think it was such a smart scene for you to add. So I think it really humanizes, like when the armor says, the physics is dubious when he's playing basketball. And I thought it was a, a, a perfect scene to humanize the character of Eric. Was that like when you were plotting the story, were you thinking to yourself, I need this issue to ground him? Was it just something to lighten the, to lighten the mood? Like, what was your thought process on that one? Yeah, well, that's, well, that scene has a couple of different things going on. Number one, I, I wanted to show that the kids in the neighborhood would immediately think he was awesome because they don't care about the fact that he breaks buildings or that he <laughs> stops traffic or whatever. Like, they just like, oh, is it? badass superhero hobo that lives in my neighborhood. (laughs) He didn't have a place to live. He refused to like wear clothes. He didn't want to buy anything. And so it's just just like, it's a dirty Superman that walks around. And so (laughs) what would the neighborhood kids want to do with the badass guy that can fly and like basketball made sense. But I also wanted to show that while Shanara can tell him anything, any human has ever thought or said, she can't help him play basketball. Like you go to the Wikipedia entry for basketball and explain academically what the pick and roll is. It isn't going to make even the world's you know craziest, most gifted athlete be able to play basketball unless you can. It's a pretty funny scene because he's asking, like he wants her to explain what he's supposed to do. And she's talking to him about <laughs> like the inception of the game and the peach basket and all yeah. this stuff. <laughs> He chucks the ball up at the almost knocks the backboard off, and then <laughs> that by one of the kids' moms because the creepy superhero guy is talking to her kid. <laughs> and, and I really like that slogan. You should put that on top of the comic book. Dirty Superman, Exo Man Award, Dirty Superman. <laughs> that's that's funny. And the other thing I think is interesting too is that the people around him do know that he's our. He doesn't have at the moment, at least, a secret identity. Is that something that is intentionally going to complicate things for him because they know the villains at least, and everyone knows where he lives or is going to live? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a thing that wouldn't occur to him because of the time and place that he's from, right? Like the idea of hiding his identity. Like he's a warrior. He doesn't, he doesn't think about that. He doesn't care about that. But yeah, it, the idea of him having an image and people having any thoughts other than I didn't die, that's good from what he's doing didn't doesn't occur to him at first. And then it becomes a major focus of the book. Like you don't get to go stop a war unless the world loves you because that's international politics and <laughs> can be a problem. You know, you right, right, right. power vacuum in the Ukraine, someone fills that. And unless you want to be a 
king in Ukraine. <laughs> like, it's not going to be you. So he starts to develop as the series goes on, like a, a superhero persona. But then you have to live up to that. And then you've got a target on your back. And it, it, it's just there are a lot of real world problems to being that that you know that figure in modern society so a very elaborate yes <laughs> definitely a thing we're addressing so and and i think it's also pretty cool that eric sorry no, no worries when prior to um when he was a visigoth my understanding that he was a, a prince is that correct yes so there's moments in the first issue where he's shown to be penniless and around other people who are definitely homeless is that an intentional attempt to show how he's going to grow and maybe develop a, a level of empathy for others who are maybe suffering. Yeah. Well, a lot of that comes from where, you know, he's been so far removed for years now from what, where he grew up and how things were, you know, he, he lived as a slave for years on an alien ship. And then <laughs> when he escaped, it was because he accidentally bonded with an alien armor and then flew back to earth where, you know, hundreds of years have passed and then he had to stop an alien invasion and then he lived in an alien world. So like he he's just I think brass tacks, if you think about it from a from a PTSD standpoint, he's been through so much, his identity is very fractured. Like everyone he knew and loved is either a dead, long dead, or on a distant planet. And so yeah, I mean he's just like literally starting from the ground up. Like I don't at first is I don't need anything. I can hunt my own food. I can, you know, I can survive anything and I'm just going to be the champion of these people and help people. I just want to help people. But that doesn't work long term. <laughs> you have to have people in your life to not go crazy. And Shonara understands that and he starts to develop that. But yeah, I like taking him all the way to to rock bottom from our perspective was a way to kind of like to grow a new version of him up out of the ground. So for the readers such as myself who may have not been familiar with the previous run on, on Exo Manowar, do you why does he want to do good things for other people? Is he just good hearted? Is there something else that is driving him? Yeah, I mean I think fighting for what's right is how he was trained, right? Like they or like how he was raised, raised as a prince to, to try to stop this the, the Roman Empire at that point was an unstoppable force, like the Borg or something, right? Like they're going to yeah. come and crush you and you, you you fight for your people so that you don't get crushed. And yeah, I mean, I think he's just been through so much. I think he's, he <laughs> likes the idea of fighting as an existence, like fighting for good and helping people as an, as an existence. And we don't, again, we don't get into, especially at first, the how and why of how he showed up because it's not really the point of this story. But he's back on an earth that's not that similar to what he remembers. He no longer has these extraterrestrial problems to solve. But he's, you know, he's a fighter. He's a warrior. So it's just the next battle, I think, is the way he looks at it. But again, he's also pretty broken from <laughs> what, from all of the stuff he's been through. And that kind of explains his mental state. So, and the other thing, that, like I said, I, I really did love what, what you did with those first two issues. And I like that you incorporated the Ukrainian Civil War into the story. I, I especially could be, I don't know if our listeners what they know about current events, but we obviously know there's an issue in, in Ukraine going on right now. And is that, it felt like that was a way that you literally grounded it and say, this story is happening now and here. And not only that, but as we go, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later, the impact of that, was that, was it? that kind of a way to let your readers know that this really is going to be based on what's going on in our world. Yeah. I wanted to differentiate it. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of years writing Marvel comics where 
all the bad guys are from fake countries and mostly, you know, science is mostly magic and everything is, you can do anything you want without really explaining it, but it also, the, the stakes never feel very realistic in a lot of ways. You know, they mm. can be human, but not just not super realistic. And so the fact that we were going to be able to, like, for instance, have police make a mistake and not necessarily be the white shining knight without <clears throat> the company worrying about it was nice. And then, yeah, being able to set a, a war in an actual fraught country, you know, in the real world was was nice because it does. It makes it feel more real. It makes it feel like something from the news with a superhero element added to it and not just made up country number seven, you know, whatever. At the same time, it's not what we're doing isn't the actual Ukrainian civil war. You know, it's not we're, it, it is inspired by recent events in that part of the world and we're using the real names but it's our bad guy is a made up you know warlord supervillain he's not an, an actual human being this isn't my treatise on uh, the that part of the world and nor am i capable of writing such a thing <laughs> but you know you do enough research to kind of get to lay of the land and to be able to make it seem real enough realish and hopefully not wildly offensive to but yeah, yeah that was purposeful to make it feel grounded for sure and, and I agree with what you said about like the idea of the superheroes in other other universes where, you know, it, 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 when you think about it, if the characters like Superman and some of these other characters, the Hulk, all these other things, if they really lived in these cities and with the level of destruction they caused, the, the amount of must have been constant deaths, you would have to wonder, one, what is the budget of these cities to afford repairs? And also, obviously, why would anyone live in those cities? There's no consequences. Right. They just, but they don't go into any of those consequences. That would be, I guess, I mean, severe, you know? Yeah, I actually, I, I was working on a Spider-Man book that got killed because of COVID. But one of the plot points that we were dealing with involved uh, property value. Yeah. And it's a weird thing because property value in Manhattan pre-COVID, like, it's a no-lose proposition, right? Like, you buy Manhattan property and in 10 years it's worth a lot more because it's just, there's not very much of it and it's very sought after. Yeah. But in the Marvel Universe, that's where every horrible thing happens. So, <laughs> and no one would live in New York. Like, New York would be a terrible, terrifying place. <laughs> All of these supervillains are always breaking things and killing people. And it would be terrible. But it that's not how, yeah, superhero universes don't usually have, like, real-world repercussions to the weirdness. Because, yeah, that... <laughs> That would be the worst place. Like, no one would live on the island of Manhattan because it's where all of the crazy, scary people are who want to kill each other and break things all the time. Um, right. And we, yeah, so we take real-world New York, put one hero in it, and have him break <laughs> things and piss people off, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I, I do think about, like, when you think about the Marvel Universe, and I do enjoy the Marvel Universe, the, sure. the issue is everything does occur in New York. It's like, you yeah, know, no ha nothing's happening in the Midwest. Apparently, no stories have no villains are there, so... Why not just move a little bit to the West and you're just fine? Why would you screw around and live in New York, for God's sakes? Same with, like, Gotham or something. You know, like, why would you live in Gotham? Right, yeah, it doesn't make practical sense, which is, I mean, it's, and it's part of the fun of those universes is that it's sort of like New York, but it's packed with all this weird stuff. Like, I'm not saying it's bad, but right, it just, right. it's hard to to talk about real-world repercussions in those universes because there have never been any, you know, like, it's it's all, it's all different physics, sort of dif different cultural physics. And we tried to keep in this because, you know, we have the freedom to keep the cultural physics as realistic as possible, even if the things he's physically doing are impossible. And, and, I, and I really like that. I mean, without giving too much away, there's a moment where 
Eric decides to solve, I guess, in quotations, the issue in the Ukraine civil war. And it kind of goes to shit a little bit while well, he made those an honest attempt. And I think that was a, a wonderful way of teaching a character the lessons of, yes, you can do whatever you want, but keep in mind, just because you think it's a good idea, people's not going to turn around and be like, oh, thank you, oh, great, Eric, everything is good now that you stopped this, you know? And I, yeah, and if it all comes down to optics, and, you know, I, I think a lot of stuff has come out in the last couple of years with the United States being so politically divided and the idea of algorithms showing you the kind of news you want to see and the most salacious versions of it. Like, yeah, like this guy doing this, if you watch it on this channel, is an amazing hero doing an amazing thing. You watch it on this channel, the devil has come to kill us all. <laughs> yep. And, you know, people genuinely believe that. So, yeah, even even like a totally moral, totally heroic act, if you don't sell it right, yeah, you get a real problem on your hands. And that's just the optics of it. Like, like you said, in, in the case of going and stopping a war, then what? Like, if you defeat both sides, if you force both sides to stop fighting, well, then who's in control? What what happens next? Which has happened in, you know, the U.S. has funded some, some civil wars <laughs> and some uprisings places. And oftentimes, 10 years down the line, it's much worse for everyone than it was um, before. Like Afghanistan. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was <laughs> but yeah, so if you know a superhero tried to go do that, you would have similar results, I think. And and it was a it was a good lesson for him to learn because how do you do this the right way? Like, what is the right way to go be Superman? Is there like is there a way that where people don't get hurt and you don't just poke holes in things that fill up with something worse? It, 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 uh, are you going to explore also the possibility? Because I also I think there's in society probably two types of people in any situation: the ones who are going to be like angry that someone got involved in their shit and the other side people group of people who would basically be begging this person to get involved in every situation that they have is is eric gonna find himself in a similar situation where people are also going do this for us you need to fix that why can't why aren't you doing this other thing yeah i mean we, we and we will definitely like where his we're gonna play a lot with where his influences come from and why he makes these choices and what you know what makes sense I guess is what it comes down to. Cause there are the, the things you can, it's sort of like you can do nice things because it looks good. And because it, if you give to this charity, then your taxes are lower. And then you can do the things that know that are just good, that no one's going to notice. And the superhero version of that is there's the messy stuff that needs to be done that some people aren't going to like. And then there's the, you know, the stuff that they put you on the cover of the magazine for that makes everybody like you. Mm. And he kind of tries to thread that needle how do you stay popular enough doing the clean, the squeaky clean stuff that you're capable of getting your hands a little bit dirty to try and help over here? And it, yeah, it, it's, it's a major theme of the book going forward. It's what is, you know, what does a hero need I, to do? Yeah, I really like that because I, 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 I would imagine if I was a hero, there would definitely be not just a motivation, but, you know, a need to want to be loved and do whatever it is that will get you more love. Right. And well, and the beauty of Eric is at the beginning, he doesn't care. He wants to do what's right. Like he is, you know, he's kind of like a Klingon. Like he has a <laughs> code. And as long as he's following that code, all is, you know, might is right or whatever. But that's not how modern humanity sees it. And there's cameras everywhere. And there's going to be an unflattering angle of everything that he does. So he has to start caring. 
And then how does that change you? And how does that change your motivations? And do, do you lose your heroism in that if you have to worry about that? And one great character that you introduced is Troy Whitaker, who makes a joke that he's not a villain in the traditional sense. So as you develop him, how close to that truth is he when he says, I'm not um, a villain in a traditional sense? Is he still technically going to be the primary villain of the story? No, I, Troy is much more complicated than that. Troy is a billionaire that wants what's best and who is brilliant and he sees all of the angles. He's lose everything that, that Eric is not. Like he sees the optics of everything. He sees the angles. He sees... Like he understands the political move, but he also wants, you know, he, he wants a better world. He wants the same things that Eric does. But getting the two to see eye to eye because of that is difficult. Because <laughs> if it were up to Troy, Eric would only always do the stuff that gets him on the magazine cover. Because that's gotcha. the stuff that has political, you know, has capital. But no, he, he, you know, he understands how Eric's going to see him, which is why he says that. But no, he's, he's definitely not the villain. He's just a very complicated ally, I guess is the way to put it. He also, in my head, has Matthew McConaughey's voice <laughs> on the right. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. I, I, I didn't hear that voice, but now that you're saying it, I can, I can totally hear Matthew McConaughey in, the, in that character. <laughs> yeah, he's like a Texan Elon Musk, sort of. So he has all the money in the world, but yeah, he sounds like Matthew McConaughey. So the, another character that, that you introduced as interesting is that is Tina Morris. So is she being set up as the love interest? No. Hello? Hi, sorry. I'm thinking about the question. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Not as such. We're building we're building a family for him as a sort of is my way to put it, but I, I don't think of it in terms of a love interest, at least not first. It's more just like that like friends giving sort of a family, you know, like the, the community that the family that you find, the, the community that, that comes together around you when you when you are able to be your true self. And the, 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 the most of the side characters, Troy included, I guess, is weird entry into this. Yeah, they just became, they sort of all gel around to become Eric and Shahar's people. But Eric's, if you go back and read the, the previous runs, his romantic history is fraught. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to put him in a relationship right off the bat. So I guess no is my answer. Not a love interest, but there's definitely a lot of love there. So... So what can the readers look forward to in next issues of X and O Man of War? Lots of crazy pops off pretty quickly. Like I said, the goal is to make this world big and weird and scary enough that it needs an Eric. And that starts to happen pretty quickly. So we've, you know, we, we've established a home base. We've established a, a, a core group around him and the people that are going to help him go forward. And now we're going to smash it with a sledgehammer and make <laughs> him pick up the pieces. Well, it, like I said, I, I really thought it was a w wonderfully... Done the first two issues I was able to, I was able to read of Exo Man of War. I think it was very well done. And I do look forward to seeing what, what you do with it. And I want to thank you very much, um, Mr. Holland, for talking with me. It was your fantastic guest. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I did. Uh, I haven't read a lot of Valiant titles. I mean, I've read some of the older ones from the early 90s, but I haven't read a lot of the newer stuff. And Dennis is a cool cat, so I'm excited to go and check this out as soon as I can. And I hope maybe you go out there and get Exo Man of War written by Dennis Hallam for us over there with the, uh, the Valiant team. If you enjoyed that, 
which I think you did because Jeff did an excellent job as always, then you should go to spoilerverse.com and check out all the other cool stuff we have. So many other interviews, so many cool people out there. I mean, the list goes on and on from Walt Simonson and Jerry Conway to uh, Chad Stahelski, the director of all the John Wick movies and Robert Wool, who was one of my favorite people of for a long time who wrote, created, directed, and produced Arliss on HBO. Uh, if you know anything, Arliss really is, I don't know, you, you have to check it out. He's a sports agent. It's an amazing, it's an amazing show. But I digress. Check out spoilerverse.com to find all of that, plus all of our other amazing shows that are on there, like Shooting the Sith and Bridging the Geekdom and Misery Point Radio and Polygon Warriors and Funny Book Forensics, and the list goes on and on, all of it for free for you to check out and enjoy. There's also independent articles and news of, you know, pop culture news. You know, you got to know when the new Star Wars movie is coming out and what's going on. Well, we tend to have that information for you. So you should go and check it out. Also, there is a little link for our store. If you don't mind checking it out, maybe you'll buy a t-shirt, maybe a sweatshirt, maybe a hat. Actually, there's no hats. I need to get hats. We need hats. Anyways, check it out. If there's something there that you can get, make yourself look, as Johnny always likes to say, fly as hell. Um, that helps us out. It just keeps the lights on uh, because we don't charge for anything. And as you notice, we don't have a lot of advertising going on. So that's our way to try to keep everything rolling along because... This surely is a labor of love. All right, guys, I'm out of here. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, notions of podcasts. We are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more.